My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so our soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, my flesh faints for the living God. So, Lord, we come with hunger and longing that you would manifest yourself to us and be our teacher and our encourager and our satisfier in these moments. Lord, I pray for an anointing. I pray for energy for us all to press on for another hour. And I pray that you would be magnified in this room. The evil one and fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Let me try to summarize just briefly where we were this morning and then link it to where we're heading tonight. The simple point this morning, at least for the center of the message, was that God does everything for his own glory. And I came to an end with the cross and why he died and argued that he died there so that his righteousness might be vindicated. And I posed you this pointed question about what is at the bottom, the foundation of your experience of the love of God. And I gave you two alternatives. One is... The pleasure of being made much of by God. And the second one was the pleasure of God enabling you to make much of him. And I say it carefully, the pleasure of making much of him, because that leads into where we're heading tonight. Because... I know that when I speak on God's God-centeredness around the country, the most common stumbling block for people to grasp it and, and love it is that it doesn't sound loving for God to be so self-exalting because he has said things about humans that are self-exalting, which are very negative. We ought not to be self-exalting. If you want to imitate God's self-exaltation, you must engage in God-exaltation. Join him in doing what he's doing, and what he's doing is exalting God, so join him in exalting God. If you compute, and it's a very easy mistake to make, he is exalting himself, I am to imitate him, therefore I will exalt myself. That's a profound mistake. But why is it loving for God to be self-exalting and unloving for us to be self-exalting? Because it doesn't sound loving to people. I've had people with tears raise their hands and say, whatever became of John 3.16? And other familiar passages that they grew up with, never hearing anything like I'm telling them. And it sounds like these truths are being torpedoed by what I'm saying. So let me try to give a brief answer to that as we move into tonight's message. I think at the root of that misunderstanding is, I hope, an unwitting sense That the only way God can be loving is to respond to your value and affirm it. It's the way we've been taught. That's the air we breathe. If you hear a message and the emotionally laden word is not there, that God recognizes your value and builds his affection for you on it, you don't feel loved. And he doesn't seem loving. 
And therefore, where that framework has gripped the heart, a God-centered message like I'm delivering is unintelligible in terms of a loving God. It just doesn't compute. He doesn't feel loving. Now, I could just be a hard-nosed, reformed person and say, take it or leave it, he's God. I could do that. I think that's why a lot of reformed churches are small. (laughs) I think there's a better way. I think there's a more biblical way to respond to that person's heart cry. I think it is a mistaken at best or a a corrupt heart cry. But giving people the benefit of the doubt, I will say their heart is better than their theology and it's mistaken. And what has to be corrected is this. We are loved not when God builds his affection for us on our value, but we are loved when God, for reasons only known to him, he chooses an unworthy, godless, rebellious, dead sinner and grants to them by his sovereign grace capacities for joy and satisfaction in him that are greater than anything they could have building on their own value. And that satisfies. Now, for the average therapeutically driven person, it doesn't seem to satisfy at first because the only categories in their head is that happiness must be built on my value. That's the only category in their head. It's the only category operative in American culture. And therefore, the message we bring, while feeling at first destructive and negative, isn't. It is liberating, and we must quickly then put what I call Christian hedonism in its place. There is a message of joy and a message of pleasure and a message of incomparable satisfaction that we can put in place of that when it begins to crumble and they wonder whether the 20 years of recovery that they've been in in all their groups has anything to put in its place. So I don't think you need to to be a hardliner and say, God is God, God has authority, you do what God says, shut up. God comes to us with, he comes to us with gospel. With gospel. Euangelion, the Greek. Good, good news. The good news is destructive at first. I've been reading Galatians lately, and Galatians is one of the most destructive books in the New Testament. He is laying waste people right and left who are building on their pride and their works. You who circumcise each other, go ahead, keep the whole law. I mean... Galatians is one mega destructive book. But oh, what it puts in its place. The desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh in order that we might not do what we would. And the spirit triumphs over the flesh by satisfying us with his desires. And all the desires of the flesh are crucified. And that's a negative message. I am crucified with Christ. You got to bleed before you can rejoice. And if you've never tasted the pain of your old ways of being happy being destroyed, you may have deceived yourself and are still building on the flesh. Having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be completed in the flesh? 
Having been shown by the Holy Spirit that we have nothing to bring and we can only rest upon God for the satisfaction of our souls, are we now, later on in the Christian life, going to begin to rebuild that which we tore down and make Christ a transgressor? It's a very powerful book. You should read it sometime and be slain and raised again by it. So the implication is then that God is loving in being self-exalting. He's the only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the only loving way to live. Because if you happen to be, and there is only one in the universe, if you happen to be a person whose glory whose character, whose beauty is infinitely satisfying for all who behold you, you would be cruel not to exalt yourself in the midst of others. And you would be loving to exalt yourself for their enjoyment in the midst of others. Nobody can copy God in this. Nobody is like this. All we can do is point to another. That's all we can do if we want to evangelize and do missions. We point to another. We deflect off of ourselves. We have nothing in which others can be satisfied. If we draw attention to ourselves, we are cruel. If God draws attention to himself, he is loving. If you can't compute that, you got to get it. You gotta pray, you gotta seek, you gotta meditate till the self-exaltation of God becomes the sweetest, most loving kind of God you can imagine. He is God. There is no other way for Him to be. He is stuck with being glorious. He can only love you by commending Himself to you. He cannot humble himself and deflect to anyone without killing you and destroying you. So we develop little ways of saying this, namely, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me. When I am most satisfied in him. And if you ask then, given this understanding of the centrality of God in God and in life, how then shall we live so as to magnify him? The answer is on the face of it, isn't it? Namely, pursue joy in him. Pursue joy in him. Pursue joy in him. And by that joy in him, sever the root of all other competing joys. And this is the secret of sanctification in the Christian life. It is such a positive message. It is such a positive message that the only way to conquer lust, for example, or bitterness, revenge, or covetousness, or pride. The only way to sever the mighty gushing root of those competing promises of satisfaction that come up through our brain or our groin is to sever it with the power of a superior promise. Namely, God's offer of himself for his enjoyment. That is our enjoyment of him. Now, the Westminster Catechism gets it almost exactly right. They do get it right, but they're not explicit. What is the chief end of man? Question number one. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now. Did you notice the absence of the S at the end of end? Man's chief end, not ends, is to do two things. Why? Two things, one and two things. 
If you think about this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. But it's one end. How is it one end? These divines were not, they didn't throw away words. They didn't throw away letters for no reason. They threw that S away for a reason. And the reason is the and means by. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. They are not two ends. They are one end. Now, when you see that, then God's passion for the glory of God will not feel like it is in competition with his loving you. Because in pursuing his glory in and through you, he will be pursuing your joy in him. Because your joy in him is precisely where his glory in you comes to consummation. If you get that, then you will never feel like God's passion to be glorified and your passion to be satisfied are in competition with each other. Which is what so many evangelicals feel. We're wired by our fallenness to feel like if there's a God, and if that God is God-centered, he's got to be against my joy. And the only way to get in good graces with him is to forget my joy and somehow begin to serve and dutifully follow this God. Well, I got a phone call from a person that I was supposed to do a seminar with on a, an issue. I got to be careful here. I'm going to tip you off because you all know this person probably. And uh, this person said, oh, background. They asked me to give a title to the seminar. So I said, uh, mm, pursuing joy in mission. What did they expect, you know? And this person phoned and said, I don't think I like that title. Because I think that we should pursue obedience, not joy. And joy will be a byproduct. And my, my whole staff got this phone call, gathered around and said, do they know who they're doing a seminar with? <laughs> Why did these people ask for these two to do a seminar together? So here's what I wrote back. I wrote back and I said, now you say we should all pursue obedience, not joy. And joy will be the unpursued byproduct. Isn't that like saying... We should all eat fruit, not apples. You didn't understand what I just said. <laughs> and you're not alone. Pursue obedience. Don't pursue joy. Eat fruit. Don't eat apples. Meaning this. Interpretation. An apple is a fruit. Got that part. An apple is a fruit. Pursuing joy is an act of obedience to about a hundred commands in the Bible. Like Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. Serve the Lord with... Oh, good. We don't need to read the other 1,500 here or so. I have a page. I have a page. I'll read a few of them just, just for fun. 
Psalm 32:11 Be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Matthew 5:12 Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Romans 12:15 Rejoice with those who rejoice. 1 Corinthians 13:6 Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with the truth. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things is not worrisome to me. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation and so on. So now here, this person writes to me and says, pursue obedience. And I say, to what commands? To the, just the commands to not, I don't even know how to finish the sentence. The Bible commands me to rejoice. Do you want me to obey those commands? I ask. And she says, I suppose so. So it's okay to pursue joy because we're commanded to pursue joy. I mean, God is God, right? Obedience is doing what he says, right? Any disagreement so far? He said, delight yourself in the Lord. Therefore, this is simple Aristotelian logic. Therefore, be obedient, pursue joy. So don't ever, ever, ever let anybody commend to you Obedience over against the pursuit of joy in God. Don't ever let that happen in your life. Just tell them what? We're supposed to eat fruit and not apples? And then just let that hang on them for a while. Immanuel Kant the philosopher of the 18th century got us into big trouble by saying things like duty, doing what you're supposed to do because it's right to do it with no thought of any interest coming back to you whatsoever. No joy, no delight, no pleasure, no reward is the essence of virtue. That thing is in the air of Christianity. It just hangs in the air that the degree to which you want some blessedness through an act of worship or obedience, you contaminate the act of obedience or worship. You contaminate it. You ruin it to the degree that you want delight, joy, blessedness in it. That's in the air. It took me years to break break through this. I've been working on this for about 25 years, trying to break through that for the evangelical church. Because it absolutely destroys worship. If you believe that the higher the moral act, the less you should pursue of your own delight in it, you cannot worship as you ought. Nor, I would argue, though this is another talk, Somewhere down the line, you can't love each other either. You can't love each other if you don't pursue your own delight. Even though this is another talk, I'll just stick in a little parenthesis here. It's <laughs> an illustration. This might lead to my favorite illustration about Noel. It might. He, he wants me to do this illustration. A lot of you are tired of it. Um, but this is, this is the, uh, if you go to visit somebody in the hospital, this is a loving thing to do. And it's late and you're tired and you didn't want to go at first and you prayed and asked for forgiveness for your disinclination and asked God to restore to you the joy of your ministry. And you walk in there and she opens her eyes who just had a heart attack or something and she sees you there at 10 o'clock at night. She says, oh, pastor, you didn't have to do that. Why did you come across town? And you say, it's my duty. I'm a pastor. <laughs> now, 
That's not the right answer. <laughs> and the reason it's not is because people know themselves more loved when the act of sacrifice or blessing is done joyfully rather than begrudgingly. So the pursuit of your joy in the elevator on the way to the fourth floor of Abbott Northwestern Hospital is a loving thing to do. Kant notwithstanding. It's a loving thing in the elevator to repent and say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'd rather be at home. I'm sorry that I'm disinclined. I'm sorry that I'm grumbling and murmuring about this cost of the ministry. Would you restore to me the joy of love? So that when you walk in there and she opens her eyes and says, oh, pastor, you didn't have to drive all the way. Thank you. Why did you? You can say. I really enjoy being with my people in need. Never in a million years would she say, all you ever do is pursue your joy, Pastor. <laughs> so leave the room and bring somebody who loves me. Never in a million years. Now, that's an illustration of the same point about this other illustration at the horizontal level. And he wanted me to give you the vertical illustrations. So I'll give it to you because some of you haven't read it, read it, but I'll give it to you because I love to do this. I, I, I'm, I'm almost tempted to, to, to apply it to Mother's Day because I did buy Noel a really, really neat corsage on Mother's Day two weeks ago. We have this tradition of yellow roses for each son, and we just adopted a little girl two years ago. And. And so now I've got a girl to deal with in the house. And I said, now, what should she look like in the corsage that goes back 25 years? We've been doing these corsages and we always have yellow daisies and one yellow rose for every boy. And now we've got this little girl. And so this new tradition is that right in the middle of these four yellow roses is a Sort of pink slash lavender, whatever they've got. I, I kind of go to Cedar Floor. I say, you got to understand what we're doing here. <laughs> so I watch them build this corsage. you got to get this thing right. Now, but I won't use that as an illustration because it doesn't work. You get, so the real illustration is we've been married. We've been married 30 years this December. And... So I, I arrive at the door and I, I ring the doorbell on our 30th anniversary, say, this December 21st. I never ring the doorbell to get in. She comes, looks funny at the door while you're ringing the doorbell. And I pull the roses out from behind my back. 30 long stem roses broke the bank. And I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. Same illustration. You see the similarity? Only here's the difference. Let's back up and run the run the uh, tape again. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? I couldn't help myself. I love buying you roses. In fact, why don't you uh, go change your clothes because I've arranged for a babysitter and we're going out tonight because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. And never in a million years would she say, nothing you'd rather do. All you ever think about is you, you, you. Now, the reason the reason she wouldn't say that is the same reason that on Sunday morning, when God comes down to your church, and bows and stoops to see what you're doing and says, why are you here? Why are you here doing this? If you say to him, Christians are supposed to do this. This is our duty. We read it in the book. Praise the Lord. It says, praise the Lord. That's we're being obedient people. We do our duty. We learn. We're reformed. Reformed people obey God. 
That's the wrong answer. That's the wrong answer. The right answer to God on Sunday morning when he opens the door and finds you with a bouquet of roses called worship. The right answer is there's no place I'd rather be. Because where can I go? You have the words of life. You have the bread of life. You have the water. You have the healing. You have the beauty. You have the glory. You have the hope. You have the treasure. Whom have I but thee? Where would I go? I'm only here because I want to be happy in you. I'm turning away from every alternative. I'm not going golfing this morning. I'm watching TV this morning. I'm not taking a walk around the lake this morning. I'm here because you are my only hope for this cavernous longing that I have for joy. And God will say to that, that's a good answer. That's right. That's who I am. That's who I am. Because I am most glorified when you turn from all those things and find yourself satisfied in me. Do you see the connection? Get it. Now, this is very controversial. I mean, it sounds like you don't think it's controversial. So I could just go home now, I think. And you guys got it, so I'll just leave you. But there are a few other things to say. And you need, you need to be prepared as a people. If you love that truth that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, you need to be able to defend it biblically. You need to be able to go to the Bible when people lift up objections, which they will. I mean, this does not land on people easily. And so let me try to give you a little broader foundation than what we've developed so far. Um, I, I've given you commands. I read, what, ten maybe commands to be happy. Let me give you maybe two other supports for whether the Bible teaches that you should pursue your joy all the time in everything in God. One would come from the nature of faith and one would come from the nature of sin. Let's take Hebrews 11:6. This is a real familiar verse. It says, um, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. One, that he exists. And secondly, that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now think about this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Everybody who's a believer certainly wants to please God. God says, the only way you can please me is coming to me in faith. And faith has at least two components to it. One, the confidence that God is. And here's this amazing second one. The confidence that when you come, you're coming for reward. You cannot please God unless you come to him for reward. That's the end of Immanuel Kant. It's exactly the opposite of what he says. He says, and so do tens of thousands of ethicists, both scholarly and popular, that you cannot please God if you come for reward. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on love your enemies and a whole big section of the book was on motivation. 
And so I read ethical treatise after ethical treatise on motivation for radical love. And over and over and over and over again, I would read, well, you can't love with a view to reward because then it's not love. And now I find God saying, the only way you can please me is by coming to me with a believing confidence that I am a rewarder to you. I mean, nothing jars a student than that, more than that. So my second, after this long list of commandments that you should be happy in God, my second argument for why you should pursue joy in God relentlessly is that if you don't, you're not a believer. You don't have faith that pleases God because faith must come to God believing that he's a rewarder. You know what most ethicists do with the dozens and dozens of unblushing promises of reward in the Gospels, they say, well, they should be unanticipated reward. I mean, uh, results of your obedience, not the thing that you want when you obey. Now, there's a problem here. There's a huge problem here. The problem is God is a very bad teacher to introduce to us these contaminating incentives up front where they just mess us up and ruin our mind. Now, there is a verse that really makes that plain. And it's Acts 20.35, where Paul is pleading with the elders on the beach in Miletus, and he says to them, I want you to labor for the weak. Spend yourself for your people. Talking to pastors, just give yourself away like I do. I worked late at night knitting these tents together so I could teach all morning and not charge anybody anything. Labor like that. Love your people. Remembering the word of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know what the most controversial word in that verse is? The word remembering. Because had he believed what most ethical theorists today believe, he surely would have used the word forgetting. Labor for your people, love your people, forgetting the word which the Lord spoke. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Because if you remember it, you will ruin your acts of love for your people. Because you'll do it for the blessedness that there is in it. And so, very calmly and very confidently, I put the Bible over all the ethical theorists and say, sorry, I'm following the Bible. The Bible says, John Piper, when you're in your car and in the elevator, not feeling like giving, but feeling like going home and receiving from your little girl and putting your feet up and reading a good book. When you are wrestling like that, the Bible says, remember, it is more blessed to be at the hospital than to be at home. Remember it. Remember it. Remember it. Remember it. Don't forget it and try to rise in your own heroic strength and say, by virtue of my moral commitment to duty, I will do what pastors are supposed to do. Because when you're done with that, you know who's getting the glory. The hero gets the glory. The desperate child who has no resources at 10 o'clock at night and cries out to God, Oh God, restore to me the joy of my ministry so that I delight to do what you call me to do. When that child is done with that ministry and gets in his car at 1030 and breathes a deep sigh, God will get the glory. God will get the glory. Not him. So that's my 
That's my second argument. The nature of faith calls us to pursue God as a rewarder constantly. We are bankrupt. He's rich. We're hungry. He's got the bread. We're thirsty. He's got the water. We're empty. He's got the fullness. He gets the glory when we cry for more, more, more. When we get up in the morning and pray Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy me in the morning with thy steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in thee all my days. He gets the glory. Then if we get up in the morning and say, keep your joy for yourself. I'm supposed to do it out of duty. Don't do that to the Psalms. Don't do that to the Psalms. Let them stand. Here's a third or fourth, whatever it is, reason. Namely, the nature of sin. The nature of sin. I get this from Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13. Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, cries out like this. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Did you know what he just called this? He called it evil. My people have committed two great evils. Number one, turning away from a fountain. It's wicked not to pursue the satisfaction of your thirst in God. Wicked, wicked, wicked. To pursue your joy in the broken cisterns of the world with your back to the fountain. You feel what's at stake here in Christian hedonism. We are not playing word games. My theology is not a word game. We are dealing with wickedness that defiles the living God by a refusal to be happy in Him. God is so shocked by this that He says to the universe, Be appalled! My people have looked at the fountain of living water and have said, No thank you. No thank you. And spent the rest of their life Shoveling in the sand of the world, trying to find a rock to lick to satisfy the longings of their heart. Money, career, a spouse, children, power, vacations, a few more megahertz on the computer. What's your broken cistern? Watch out. We are not playing games, folks. Not to pursue joy in God relentlessly and all the time in all you do is wicked. It's wicked. And to substitute anything for God for your ultimate satisfaction is wicked. Now, um, it's got to make some judgment calls here as to what we're going to do for these last few minutes. I think I want to give you one more objection that's raised and then close with a few practical helps on how to become the kind of person we're talking about here. Because a lot of people, when I'm done with this radical call, to delight in God, feel absolutely helpless, devastated. Because you wanted to be at the Bulls game and watch them finish. And you had to come worship. And that's tormenting you right now. 
Why don't you delight more in God? Now, that may not be true for many, given what I heard coming out of your mouths about an hour ago. But there is something else probably that's pulling at you. And you feel like I could never measure up to what John Piper just said. I could never measure up to pursuing God like that. And so I want to close with some practical helps. But let me give you one more objection that is thrown up. And the objection goes something like this. You talk relentlessly about pursuing joy in God. It just doesn't sound like the noble concept of serving God. I mean, isn't a huge motif in the Bible to serve God, serve God like a slave? I mean, Paul called himself a bondservant, a slave of God. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So don't serve God as though he needed anything. God's the giver. You're the getter. Don't serve him any other way. We're not talking about erecting a ladder here for you to climb to heaven, folks. If you feel like I've erected a ladder and you now have to perform to get to the top or God's going to be dissatisfied, you have not heard me. You are hearing me through a legalistic grid that the devil and your own flesh is putting in your brain because I'm not putting it there. I'm tearing down ladders and putting you under a waterfall. And the waterfall is free and your job is to open your mouth. And lie on your back. Which is very hard to do if you want to be the talker in this affair. If you want to design salvation, which is most what the world wants to do. They want to design it, not receive it like a little child. Then you're going to use your mouth to tell God how it ought to be. And then you will not lie down under his waterfall and receive freely what he has to give. So it may sound easy to lie down, which it is. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, and my burden is. So why did he say, the way is hard that leads to life, and few that be that find it? Four chapters earlier. There's something worth meditating on. Just put Matthew 11, which I just quoted, over against Matthew 7. The way is easy and light. The way is narrow, hard. Few there be that find it. And here's my solution to that. Proud people... Self-determining people find it hard to lay down under a waterfall. These texts are not contradicting each other by one erecting a ladder by which you climb to heaven and the other saying there's no ladder, there's a waterfall to get under. This one, the hard one, is simply saying until you humble yourself, and realize you're broken, you're empty, you're starved, you're bankrupt, you're poor. You'll never lie down under the waterfall. It's not hard to lie down under a waterfall. It's easy. Second text besides Acts 17, 25 is Matthew 10:45. The Son of Man came not to be served. But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So don't serve him. Because he said he came not to be served. But to serve. Therefore, my answer to the question, what becomes of the noble biblical concept of service? My answer is interpret it. Biblically, as 
First Peter 4.11 does. One of your pastors, CJ, put his hand on your chest about two hours ago and prayed. Help him, Lord, to serve in the strength that God supplies. And he stopped. Now I'm going to finish the verse for him. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ to whom be the dominion forever. That's the way to serve. Serve in the strength that God supplies. Serve under the waterfall. Wherever the waterfall moves, now we can move. Saturday night, don't move. Don't move. Don't go to where the job is. Go where the waterfall is. You'll know that God's calling you to move from Philadelphia or Gaithersburg or Indiana to another city when the waterfall of God's blessing and outpouring begins to move. And you want to stay under it. You just want to stay under it. You want to be enriched. You want to be enabled. You want to be empowered. And he says, my power's moving. Go with my power. Go with me. I'm moving. You stay under that because under that, you're the getter. He's the giver. And the giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory according to 1 Peter 4, 11. Okay, enough on defense, enough on answering objections. Let's take maybe five or seven minutes here on Practical suggestions on how to nurture um, this heart that delights in God. And it's a real simple thing. I, I don't have anything more profound to say here than read your Bible and pray. But I will try to be a little more specific and a little more practical than that because I think you probably feel that's cheap and easy. I, I do I do have a lot of people who who with too much cynicism in their voice in the midst of crisis say, and don't give us your pat answers about reading the Bible and praying. I always flinch when I hear that. I really flinch because it's my life. This is my life. I'm not belittling you, Holy Spirit, when I say that. This is your book. This is your means. My heart is always ascending and longing to the Spirit when I put my elbows on either side of this book. But this is my life. This is where I get everything I know with any assurance. And this is where I get my life. This is where my marriage stays together. This is where I learn how to do teenagers. And I've done four. This is where I learn how to adopt a little African-American girl. I don't know how to do girls. I don't know what, a, what it is to raise a girl. I'm 52 years old. She's going to be a 15-year-old teenager when I'm 65. That's his confidence in this book. That's all I have to, to go on, that God will be the, the God of this book at age 65. So, practical suggestion number one, when you read the Bible, which you should do every day, Read intentionally on the lookout for the greatness of God. Many, many of us read way too passively, looking for nothing in particular, hoping something will jump out. And I think we should read with a greater resolution to see God. Ask yourself this question. If you were going to write a book just for you or your friends or your children, and the title of the book would be 365 Reasons Why I Stand in Awe of God. Here's your devotional, Josh. 365 Reasons Why I Stand in Awe of God. Read your Bible looking for those reasons. So, for example, we read the Bible as a family at the breakfast table every morning. We read the Bible in the evening as a family when the teenagers are home. They have to be there and they are glad to be there. And then my wife and I kneel and we pray. And then I have my own private devotional life. So that's my home. That's my home experience with the Bible. Four times with the Lord at least. And I've begun to build in a noon and a supper time, just a brief time, just because I feel like I need more these days. 
But at the breakfast table, we are reading through the Gospel of Mark. Talitha has learned. She's two and a half now. I turn to her and say, where are we reading, Talitha? She says, Mark. Mark. Okay, what chapter? She doesn't know what I mean by that yet. And Noel says, tell him 14. 14. So we were reading the other day uh, where Jesus is asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, I will ask you a question. The baptism of John, is it from heaven or from earth, from men? And they all have a little huddle. If we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe? And if we say it's from men, they're going to stone us because they think he's a prophet. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let's tell him we don't know. Okay. We don't know the answer. And Jesus, with razors in his eyes, says, I don't talk to people like that. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I don't play games with truth haters. I don't play games with politicians who manipulate the truth in order to keep from getting stoned and to avoid the truth of heaven. I don't play games with Washington. That's one of my devotionals. That's something I stand in awe of. I look at Jesus and I say, whoa, (laughs) don't want to tangle with Jesus. Now read your Bible like that. You don't, I'm trying to read the Bible this year, and that means I'm reading way too fast. So I got to read a long time, and I got to slow down, and I got to say, is there something glorious about Jesus in Mark 14? There is. Second practical suggestion. Um, do not feel like all your time in the Word must be spent covering many chapters, linger over small portions. I think I've said enough about that one. It's almost the same as the first one. The first one was look for specific aspects of God's greatness. The second one, linger over small portions and savor them. Third suggestion, try writing the text and some of your ideas about it. I had a young woman come to me some years ago and she said, I read my Bible and nothing happens I try to read it and my mind wanders and I hear you say that it comes alive and it shows to shape your heart and bring joy and be like honey and reward. And it doesn't work. And I said, why don't you try this? Why don't you go home and just this week and we'll check back in next week because she's in a small group with me. Try instead of reading a lot, writing out the passage, write the passage. And if an idea comes to your mind about what you're writing, write it on another piece of paper and see what happens. She came back to me glowing the next week that she had seen so much because there is a miracle. I think I have one in here. There it is. No, right here. This is a miracle instrument. This is a miracle instrument. This is a pen. Can you see this? This is a pen. There are eyes in the pen. I don't know why. There are eyes in the pen. It may simply be because it slows you down. I think it's more than that, though. I I think it's something more, and I don't know what. But when you write the text, you see more. John Calvin said, I count myself to me among those who learn as they write and write as they learn. And I know he meant more than copy texts. But you will do more than copy texts if you copy texts. I'm a writer because I am a hedonist. I do not know what I think until I write. My mind is weak. 
Albert Einstein, they say, could hold an idea in his head for weeks and look at it from a hundred different angles and never lose it. I think I can last about 10 seconds until I see dust on the shade. And then I'm upset at Noel and my devotions are almost over. All the upheaval of 30 years of living together with somebody I'm so different from comes in. And where did the Bible verse ever go? So there's a way to conquer that. Write. Because while you're writing, you're riveted. The mind isn't all over the place at a little jingle or a little something or just anything the devil uses to distract you. So that's my third suggestion. I'm hurrying. Number four, memorize, memorize, memorize the Bible. Oh, people, memorize the Bible. We regard this as so highly that we have what's called the fighter verse program at our church. And every week, everybody is supposed to memorize another verse. And on Sunday morning, I go down in the congregation and I ask somebody to stand up and say the verse. So... We need. Now, you're laughing as though you think I call on them by name, aren't you? Well, I don't. I'm I'm real. I'm a real pansy when it comes to that. I know in the Evanston Vineyard, Steve Nicholson calls on people by name in his interns because I was there and there was a group of 30 people. And he said, Joe, give us a verse on the love of God. Mary, give us a word on encouragement. And to watch them close their eyes and minister the word. You know, not like a fifth grader at a creativity night at school going, uh, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's not the way it happened. This was prophetic ministry coming out of their mouths on them because they'd memorized the word of God. Know the word of God. You want to be blessed Memorize the word of God. Memorize chapters. Memorize Romans 8. Don't die without having memorized Romans 8. If you say to me, raise your hand if you're over 40. Would you raise your hand if you're over 40? I didn't think there were any over 40 people in here. That's great. Well, you're all losing your brains. I know that. And you, you think you can't memorize, right? You think you can't memorize anymore. Only three-year-olds can memorize, which they can. But pour it into their lives. Our little girl, Talitha, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Children, obey your parent and the Lord, for this is right. Be kind one to another. Week after week, the verses are going in to this two-year-old. Now, 40-year-olds plus, I'm 52, if I were to offer you tonight $1,000 for every verse that you could memorize by next week, I wonder if you wouldn't have $100,000 by next week. So don't, here's the serious point. The benefits of memorizing scripture are 10,000 times greater than the money you would get for it. You don't believe it. You don't believe it if you don't memorize scripture. That's the problem. And I plead with you, believe it, believe it, believe it. The benefits will be great. Last suggestion, and I'll quit. Do not despise a holy Vow, meaning perhaps tonight as we close, convicted you may be that you've not been doing this. You've been sort of bellyaching why you're not growing. You've been upset and frustrated that your worship life is mediocre. You do not feel the kind of passion and desire for God that I've tried to call you to. And you've been blaming God. But not memorizing any scripture. 
Why don't you tonight make a vow? Say, God, I vow, I promise, so help me God, that before June, seven days, six days, I will memorize Romans 8, 32 to 39. Pick, pick a paragraph. That's one of the greatest in the Bible. And then use rugged discipline to do it. Because God delights to cause the flowers of spontaneity to grow in the furrows of discipline. Please don't say you've got to choose in life between a disciplined life and a spontaneous life. If you try to choose only spontaneity at the expense of discipline, you will destroy any worthy spontaneity. Spontaneity grows in the soil of discipline. Ask the farmer where the wheat comes from. It comes from God, the Bible says. But I sowed and Apollos watered and we stayed up late and got up early to do it. And God gave the increase. And when he gives it, it's all of him. But you can kill the soil. He calls you to do it. He gives you the strength to do it. And when you do it, the word of God will be for you. Maybe I'll close with this verse. Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, whose great delight is in the commandments of the Lord. Fearing God, supremacy, reverence, awe, and delight in His commandments. Make His word your delight, and He will be reverenced and magnified and glorified by you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how I pray now that you would come and dismiss us in due season here with your power. Oh God, please let what I have spoken be corrected wherever it needs to be corrected and be confirmed wherever it needs to be confirmed so that we are not left the same. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.